The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. John chapter 2, that's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. Um, one of the challenges about uh, preaching, often, sometimes, is that you occasionally get a, an interruption. Something happens, someone's phone rings, someone drops a metal water bottle or something like that, someone wears R.M. Williams boots to church and decides to go to the toilet and it's, you know, all that kind of stuff. One of the biggest um, interruptions I've ever, and Greg, I'm sorry, this isn't in my notes, so I know you're trying to follow along with this. One of the biggest interruptions I've ever experienced as a preacher, because the rule is, well not the rule, but the, the, the operating principle that I go by is that when there is uh, an interruption, when something does kind of break the, you know, whatever's going on there, just to keep going, just to, just to keep preaching, um, don't draw attention to it, just, just keep going and it'll, it'll be okay. There was one time, however, that I could not keep going. I was preaching uh, at our, when we were at North Lakes, the church there, and we were, at that time, we were, we were using a building that had floor-to-ceiling um, floor glass walls on one side with a running track. And it was a hot summer's day, and when you were on that running track and on the, during the day, because of the angle of the sun, you couldn't see in. You, you had no idea there was a church meeting in there, but you could see out really, really, really easily. And there was this one time a woman was walking with her husband and she was very heavily pregnant. Like, I think she would have given birth the next day. She, was, she had a very big tummy and she was, um, it was a hot summer's day. She was very sweaty from walking. Um, and, and so she, she was walking and she caught a glance of her just glowing, healthy, pregnant tummy. And she just started to admire her tummy in the reflection <laughs> Of the, of, the, of the windows there and then she lifted up her shirt to reveal her tummy and started rubbing her tummy and then her husband was there rubbing her tummy as well and we were inside wetting ourselves laughing just feeling so horrible that she had no idea that literally inside of a meter a, a meet, no, no closer than, no further away than a meter was about 75 people, all who could see her doing this. And then she walked on and we composed ourselves and we gathered on. Sometimes interruptions are kind of hilarious. Uh, you car- carry on afterwards. Sometimes interruptions grind things to a massive halt and it's just time to move on, time to go. Let's just call it and let's just finish up there. Today, we're looking at a story where Jesus um, causes a massive interruption. He, he grinds an entire festival to a halt. And in comparing this to the story that we looked at last week, the, the story of Jesus turning water into wine, there, the, the, the party, the wedding party that was gone for seven days, that was about to come to an end because they would run out of wine and Jesus gets there, he turns the water into wine, brings immense joy to the people there and the party goes on. Here, Jesus turns up at the Passover festival and the actions that he takes grinds this festival to a halt. He, he brings everything to a stop. We're looking at John 2 and it's the, the first time that Jesus entered the temple, the, the great building where God's people came to worship God. 
And the Bible teaches us quite comprehensively, actually, that you and I were created for just that, to worship God. We were created to magnify Him, to exalt Him, to glorify Him, to, to, to reflect His beauty and His radiance to the world around us. This is our main purpose. It's our main function as humans as God has created us. The, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says as much. It states as its answer to the first question, what is the chief end of man? What's the chief end of man? What is the purpose of mankind? What is our purpose? And the answer is this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. In other words, if you get to the end of your life and all you have done is glorified God, then you have lived your life precisely according to God's purpose and plan for you. Everything else is secondary. And worshipping God certainly includes singing songs like Be Thou My Vision and All Glory Be to Christ. Absolutely, no doubt. But it also means so much more than that. To worship God is to exalt Him. It's to make Him known in every single action, every single word, every single thought that we have, whether that's in private or, or public, and whether or not that is uh, something that, we, that involves other people or if we're just on our own. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 12, where he talks about being a living sacrifice. He says there, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. <clears throat> and then following that, Paul lays out in quite a lot of detail what happens in the lives of people who do this. He calls us to outdo one another in love, in, in, in how we honor each other. We're called to share our lives with other believers. We're called, called to extend hospitality to others, to, to speak good about those who speak ill of us, to join with other people in their rejoicing, to join with other people in their weeping, to live in harmony with other people, to be humble and to live peaceably with other people. A life that is lived according to the purposes of God is a life that is lived as a sacrifice for the glory of God and the benefit of others. That's what, how we're called to live. And I wonder upon hearing that if your heart sank a little bit. Maybe it sounds like more work for you. Maybe it sounds like just a bar that you can't reach. More stuff that you've got to do that you just don't have the time to do. It might have, might have drummed up feelings of guilt as you realize just how far short you've fallen of worshiping God as you ought to. Maybe worshiping God sounds like a bit of a chore to you, a bit of a drag, and your heart is sad that it feels that way. Maybe you're hyper-conscious of all the ways that you feel bad at being a Christian. Like you feel like you should have so much more to offer but you don't. Maybe you feel like God is at a bit of a distance to you. And no matter, no matter how hard you try to close that gap, he always just seems out of reach and you're exhausted from trying. If that's you, my hope today is that you'll be encouraged 
as you hear God's word because there's some really good news in this. In the same way that Jesus entered the temple and knocked over tables and, and, and really made a mess of things, my hope and prayer is that Jesus will make a bit of a, a mess in our hearts. He'll knock over some tables in our minds. He'll drive a few money changes out of our thinking. To really understand this passage, to really understand the significance of what's going on here, Jesus entering the temple, we need to zoom out and we need to look at the temple as a, as a thing. As, as it's a whole history, as much as we can, as a whole thing. And so we're going to go back to the Garden of Eden. We're going to begin there. Because in the Garden of Eden, uh, many scholars point this out, that it was, this garden, in many ways, a temple. God dwelt there with mankind. They were in his presence. God communed with his people. And all of life was worship. But then sin entered the world God's people were driven out of that sanctuary and sinners could no longer be in the presence of a holy God. And from, and from that moment, God's interaction with, with mankind became a lot more spread out, a, a, a far less common. God, God would meet with people, but it was far more sporadic and spread out over time. But not long after rescuing his people out of slavery in Egypt, God commanded Moses to build for him a tabernacle, a big tent, where God would once again meet with his people, where he would commune with them. And inside this tent was a smaller section. It's called the Holy of Holies, cornered off from everything else. And there was held the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of the presence of God, the representation of the presence of God. And this, this temple, this, sorry, this tabernacle demonstrated that the people must have God in their midst and central to their lives. It's also, it also demonstrated how uh, mankind could approach God, as sinners could approach God to worship him. All sorts of regulations had to be set up to, uh, for, for, to, to worship God, for the glory of God, as they came together to worship him. And when Moses completed this tabernacle, and this is important, when Moses completed this, the tabernacle, they offered a whole lot of sacrifices. And then God descended and entered the tabernacle in the form of a cloud and drove everyone out. Aaron and Moses were functioning as priests there, and the cloud drove everyone out. The, the glory was too heavy. Fast forward then, and we come to King David, King, his son King Solomon, and King Solomon builds the temple. The tabernacle is replaced with this permanent location in Jerusalem. And this new temple is very much modeled after the, the old tabernacle with the Holy of Holies in the room and all that kind of thing. It's where priests offered sacrifices to God and glorified God. And when Solomon finished that temple and they were offering sacrifices, once again, the, God descended and, and entered into the temple and drove the priests out. The, the cloud entered the temple and the glory was too heavy. It drove everyone out. And the important thing about this temple was that this temple was meant to be the geographical and cultural center of their world. Israel's entire calendar was built around the various times that they would gather together for the temple, um, for the annual feasts and festivals, things like Yom Kippur and Passover and the festival of booths and other important annual events. The temple, 
the place where God was worshipped, was meant to be central to their lives as individuals, central to their lives as families, and central to their lives as a nation. But after centuries of rebellion against God and rejecting Him and reducing Him to nothing more than a historical afterthought of their life, God raised up the Babylonians. They came and they besieged Jerusalem, they conquered Jerusalem, and they destroyed the temple. In God's mercy and in his commitment to the covenant that he made with Abraham, God allowed the, those who went into exile to come back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. However, something strange happened. When this temple was finished, the cloud didn't descend this time. Instead, there was a strange and awkward silence like waiting on God to show up. Israel's priests attempted to keep the temple and its worship practices central to the community, but it wasn't long before God was once again being reduced to a relic of the past rather than the holy God of the universe in their midst. The worship became all about obeying the rules, keeping God happy, and then hopefully God will take care of our needs. And around 400 years later, uh, a king arose, King Herod, who saw the temple as a, a good means of leveraging power amongst the Jews. And so he set about to expand and beautify this temple. He, did, he, he commenced this massive renovation project and made it truly into a stunning, beautiful sight to behold. And we can read about that in Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21 when the disciples get to Jerusalem and they look and the temple, and they say, wow, isn't this amazing? It really was stunning. But that's all, all that it was. The worship had become token. It had become superficial. It was about ticking off boxes and ensuring that the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed. Do the right thing. Keep God happy and he'll take care of us. People would still travel into Jerusalem. They would still go there for the feasts and for the festivals. But the fear and the awe of God had run dry. It was less of a place of worship, more of a place of trade. That's the context for this point here in John chapter 2, where Jesus, during the Passover feast, during the Jewish Passover, when it was near, he went up to Jerusalem and he came into the temple, this temple that had been renovated by uh, Herod. Being Passover, the roads would have been, been packed. It would have been a hustle and bustle. And the, the crowds would have intent, intensified as thousands of Jews uh, ascended those great slopes to head up to Jerusalem once again. His, historians tell us that um, during, the, during the time of, of, of uh, Passover, the population of Jerusalem would have swelled to over 2 million people. It became absolutely packed. Jesus would have seen the merchants on the way into Jerusalem selling the various animals and the products to be used in worship for the Passover festival. When he arrived in the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. And he also found the money changers sitting there. These animals were being sold to spare the inconvenience of having to travel all the way to Jerusalem with your livestock and with your animals for this annual sacrifice. But it also become, it had become quite a lucrative industry. 
See, for an animal to be sacrificed, it, meet, it needed to meet certain standards. And there were these authorities who were put in place there in the temple who would inspect the animal and make sure that your sacrifice, your lamb or whatever it is that you've brought to sacrifice at the temple, that it actually met the standards. And they were very, very strict with these standards. Even to the point that some scholars will tell us, that, the, that these authorities who would inspect these animals, they were so good at detecting faults and problems with these sacrifices that they could even tell if that, if that animal was spotless. They could even tell if that animal would one day become, uh, they'd become a problem with it. So when, even though there was an animal that was without blemish, they could say, no, it's still not good enough. You still need to buy one of our animals. You need to buy one of these sacrifices. So it was probably just easier and safer to go and buy your sacrifice from the temple. Not only that, you had to make a donation to the temple treasury. And once again, it had to be in the right currency. And so if you rocked up there with the wrong currency, there would be these money changers who were there. And they could, they could change your money for you, but they charged hefty amounts, even to the, even to the amount of a full day's wage to change a, a, a temple shekel. Cross the I's, dot the T's. And make a bit of money on the side. When I was in Nepal at the beginning of the year, uh, Narayan, one of the church pastors there, took me um, up to one of the most prominent, one of the more prominent um, Hindu and Buddhist temples that was there in Kathmandu, and it really was hustle and bustle. It was, we got there and it was the first time I've seen monkeys actually in the wild and so that was all really exciting but they were really aggressive and territorial and then and I got a little bit too close to a monkey and Narayan had to say, you need to back off a little bit. Um, but there was like incense burning everywhere, tourists everywhere taking photos, um, people on some kind of a pilgrimage there um, but there was, there was people selling stuff everywhere, like Everywhere, every single place where you could fit a table to sell something, there was somebody selling stuff there for you. And, and there wasn't like, you know, the markets here in Bullcock Beach where you walk past, look and keep going. These people would stand in front of you and hold an item in your face and say, buy this, buy this. And even if you said, no thanks, they would follow you around and continue asking you to buy this thing. It was hustle and bustle. It was manic. It was crazy. It was anything but sacred. I imagine that once upon a time when that temple was built, it would have, felt, it would have been a lot more sacred than that, than that. And that there is what I think of when I, when I read this, the, the hustle and bustle. What Jesus saw disgusted him. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. You can imagine the confusion and the horror as all of this took place. Animals running everywhere, the, the cacophony of, of, of noise being interrupted by the crack of Jesus' whip and his fury. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. It was a mess, it was crazy, and people were running away. People were, were being driven out of the temple. And I think to the discerning eye, we're meant to pick up on the continuity of what is happening here. The second temple had been waiting for 400 years for God's glory to enter. And, and I don't think it was a mistake that the last story that we read of 
in John's, in John's gospel, the story of Jesus turning water into wine, I don't think it's a mistake that at the very end of that story, G, uh, John writes that Jesus' disciples saw his glory and they believed. Now the glorious one was entering the temple. God was entering his temple and he was driving everyone out, just like in Moses' tabernacle, just like in Solomon's temple. The picture is clear. God has entered the temple again. His glory is heavy and the people were driven out. He told those who were selling, oxen, selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. I imagine he would have screamed that. His father's house had been turned into a means of making money. The reverence and the awe had gone. The temple had become nothing more than a means of leveraging power. It was no longer about magnifying the beauty of their God. When we become desensitized to the beauty and the magnitude of God, we do this exact same thing. We watch the clock as we read God's word and we become content with bite-sized devotionals, hoping that the time will pass quickly. We become expert excuse makers for all the reasons why we simply don't have enough time to be in God's word. Our prayers become more like Google searches looking for car parks. We even master the embarrassed chuckle as we admit to the people around us, oh yeah, I should, I should probably be reading my Bible more. Friends, we've got to pay attention to this. What enrages Jesus? What makes him furious? What makes Jesus so furious that he would make a whip and start cracking it? Is it when we make the same mistakes again and again? Is it when we're lacking courage? No, it's irreverence. And I actually uh, read the Lord's, um, the Ten Commandments this morning, and it stood out like a sore thumb where Jesus said, where, where, um, where the command says, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Like, you shall not use the Lord's name as if it's nothing. Irreverence. Irreverence is what infuriates Jesus. Zeal for God's house consumes him. Zeal for his father's house. His father's glory had eaten him up. I'm afraid that if I was cast into this script, I would be one of those people running out of the temple with my head covered. I'm not standing in front of you guys as someone who's made it, as someone who has a perfect record of perfect reverence for the Lord, even in the last 24 hours. I get apathetic in my faith. I go whole days where I get, I, as I'm hopping into bed, I realize I haven't even considered God today once. My prayers are just here and there scattered about. I, I'm not here in front of you saying, hey guys, be more like me. I'm not. But there's really good news. Really good news in this for us. Jesus didn't come to condemn us. And if your affections 
for God have, have, have run dry in recent times, if they've run, run aground in recent times, pay attention to what he says in, to, in response to the Jews. Pay attention to this. We've got to look at this. They come to him and they ask, what sign will you show us for doing these things? They're asking for his credentials. How dare you do this? Who do you think you are? And I think this is a good question for us to ask if we're willing to hear the answer. This is a good question for us to ask. What kind of credentials does Jesus have if we're willing to hear the answer? Because if you're not willing to hear the answer, you'll only feel condemnation. If you're not willing to hear what Jesus says in response to this, you will only feel guilt. So we've got to pay attention to his answer. Because if that's how you feel right now, if you're feeling cold and apathetic towards God, you know that your passion for Jesus is on life support at the moment. What you're feeling right now is guilt and how much effort it's going to take for you to make the condemnation stop. Pay attention to this. You might be thinking, yeah, I've heard all this before. I know I've got to read my Bible more. I know I've got to pray more. I know I've got to go tell my, my neighbors about Jesus more. When we're doing this, what we're doing is we're creating a list of more and more things for us to feel guilty about, more areas of our life where we know we haven't put God first, where we haven't been worshipping Him. But what Jesus says here will lighten our burdens and it will ease us into worship. God always, always gives us a reason to worship Him. Like consider the Ten Commandments. How do the Ten Commandments begin? And we all know about the Ten Commandments at least. How do they begin? How, does, how do these Ten Commandments begin where, where God demands obedience to Him? It begins with these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. I saved you. I saved you. I saved you from your children being slaughtered and murdered. I saved you from a, lifestyle, a, a lifetime of slavery. I, I saved you from a, a place of zero hope. I saved you from that. Then he gives the Ten Commandments, which is a means of worshipping him. Or consider again Romans 12, where we began, where Paul says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. In view of the mercies of God. Now let's take that literally for a second. The mercies of God and worship God in view of them. Like in their sight. That, that God has been merciful to us. He hasn't given us what we deserved. He's instead given us what Jesus Christ deserved. And in view of that, in view of that, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your true worship. Get your eyes on God's mercy and you'll find that worship is not a creation. Worship is response. Jesus' reply shows us what we're responding to. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. That's our reason to worship. That's our reason to worship. Jesus said, destroy this temple. If you think Christianity, if you're, here, if you're here and you're not a Christian, and you think that Christianity is crossing the T's and dotting the I's, destroy that temple. 
If you think that having faith means keeping up appearances, keeping God happy, and keeping your name on a list, destroy that temple. If you think being a Christian is, being good, is doing good things to impress God, destroy that temple. If you're looking down the barrel of a faith that has grown content with joylessness, destroy that temple. When Jesus said destroy that temple, the, the Jews thought that he was talking about literally their temple. They said, it took us 46 years to build this. How would you do this in three days? He says, I will raise it up in three days. He's pointed them to the future sign of his resurrection, that he would be destroyed on our behalf. And then three days later, he would rise again. Jesus was replacing the temple. He was re replacing the sacrifices. He was replacing all of that with himself. See, see the worst thing that has ever happened to any of us, and I don't say this lightly, the worst thing that has ever happened to any of us is that we have been separated from God by our sin. Jesus is the way that we can become reconciled to God once again. Jesus is the great high priest who makes the offering to God on our behalf and intercedes for us on our behalf. He's not just the high priest, he is also the sacrifice that was made, the, the one who absorbed our sin, the one who, as we read before in Colossians, that our sin was nailed to the cross. He took all of our sin and nailed it to the cross. Jesus is the sacrifice, is the one who made us right before God. They're celebrating Passover where they would take a lamb. And, and the, the, this, this Passover, remember the, the night in Passover, the, the, the night before they left, the, sorry, the night that they did leave Egypt, where this little lamb was slain on their behalf. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Paul says he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the statement that Jesus had made. They believe. They believed. Friends, we've got to get the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, and we've got to put it into our hearts. We've got to remember them. We've got to remember the cross. We've got to believe the scriptures. Because the cross is God's great demonstration of his unending love for you. Press his love into your heart. Make it center. Make God's love for you. The, the fact that he demonstrated his love for you by sending his one and only son to the cross to take your punishment that you deserved. He took that on your behalf so that you wouldn't have to. And if you, are, if you put your faith in Jesus, if you become a believer, if you become a Christian, that becomes true of you. Jesus' sacrifice becomes true of you. And this is where the joy comes in. If you're looking this, at this and you're thinking to yourself, yes, I, I can understand how God could love the person sitting to my left. I can understand how God could love the person sitting to my right, but I can't at all believe that God would love someone like me. Like maybe if I tried harder. Maybe, maybe then he'd love me. Maybe if, I've, if, I've, if I just was a bit of a better person. I've tried that, but I'm not very good at it. If that's you, you've got to pay attention to this last bit, this last few verses that are 
that, are, that John includes here, and it's a little bit strange. It's this little commentary that he makes, but I think it's actually really wonderful. It says in verse 23, While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many people believe, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, there's nothing to suggest in the text that those people were, you know, a, a second class of disciple compared to his other disciples. There's nothing there to suggest that. There's nothing to say that these people, they believed in Jesus, but, you know, they, were, you know, they, they didn't believe in him as good as the other disciples did. The other disciples saw the signs, they believed. These people, many people, saw the signs and they believed. Then John says, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man for he himself knew what was in man. I've never seen that on a coffee cup. I've never seen someone wearing that as a shirt. That's not a pick-me-up. That's not a, that's like Jesus knows exactly who you are and he does not trust you. Like that's, that's what this is saying. And there's a whole lot we could say about it. There's, let me just say this one thing. There's no one, that there tells us that there is no one there about whom Jesus was thinking, ooh, he'd be a good Christian. Jesus wasn't doing that. There's no one there where Jesus, no one there saying, oh, she'd be really great on my team. I could really do with someone like that. There was no one there, no one there in Jerusalem where Jesus was looking at that person and going, oh, man, he'd be easy to save. No, he knew, he knew them all. He did, not need, he did not need anybody to tell them, tell them about who they really were. He didn't, he didn't trust himself to them. And yet, they, would be, they would became believers. They believed in his name. Friends, if, if you think that you have to become a slightly better version of yourself for God to start loving you, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. God knows exactly who you are. Jesus knows exactly who you are. It's not like he died on the cross and then you got saved and then he got to know you and he went, oh. They didn't put that in the, they didn't put him in the fine print. They, they didn't really give a warning label on the back of her, on the back of her label. You're like, no. He knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly who I am. Like this is the thing about Christianity. When we talk about God's love for us, we're not saying God loves us because we're really, really lovable people. That would be nice if that was the case. I mean, it would kind of make us feel good for about 30 seconds. But it's, that's not what Christianity is. And if you mix in, mix in the world's kind of cultural narrative that we're all actually really, really great, then God's love for us kind of makes sense. Yeah, of course God would love us. Why wouldn't he love us? No, that's not, what, that's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that we don't get our dignity and our worth and our value from the fact that we're lovable and so God loves us. We get our dignity and our worth and our value from the fact that we're not lovable and the God of the universe loves us. That's where we get our dignity. That's where we get our worth. That's where your value comes from. God loves you. His love is unconditional. It has no conditions. And friends, to get this, to get, if you really want to know the, how wonderful the unconditional love of God is, you've got to become well acquainted with your sin. 
to truly see how unconditional God's love is, we need to look at the ugliness of sin and then, and this is so important, then look beyond the ugliness of, uh, ugliness of our sin and look to the beauty of his glad countenance as he loves us anyway. Look at your sin and then look beyond it to the Savior who has not stopped loving you, who has not given up on you and who desires to put you back together again, who desires to clean you up and desires to bring you back into the presence of his Father. His love for you is unconditional. His love for you is particular. I said this a few weeks ago, and I'll say it again. You are not a face in the crowd. You are not a face in the crowd. If, if you're thinking, yeah, God loves everyone generally, and I, you know, I'm like 0.00001% of that love, no. God does not split his love between his children. You are not a face in the crowd. Lo- his love for you is particular. He knows your name. He knows you. He saved you. And his love for you is the genesis of your worship. If you situate God's love in the middle of your heart, worship will cease to become a burden and a chore. It will be a natural and joyful response to his love for you. Friends, you are loved by the holy God of the universe. Enjoy it. Enjoy his love. Enjoy him. Enjoy the fact that you are loved like that. Relish it. Delight in it. Drink it deep. Put it in your heart. Remind yourself again and again, God loves me. Put it deep into your heart. This is your reality. This is, see, if you're struggling to get this, you've got to speak the gospel to your heart. You've got to do this to your heart. You've got to, the whole, you've got to ask the Holy Spirit to do this into your heart, but you, you've got to start telling yourself the truth of the gospel. Because if you're hearing your Christian and you're saying, God doesn't love me, that's heresy, right? No, if, if you're here and you're a Christian, if you're going, I've put my faith, I've put my trust in Jesus Christ, that means he loves me. It means I've been made righteous. That's my reality. That's what's true of me right now. The truest thing about you is that you are a child of God. That's more true about you. That's more true of you than the color of your eyes or the color of your hair or the occupation or your marital status or whatever it is. The truest thing about you is that God loves you and you are his child. That's what's the most important thing about you. If we were to become experts in God's love for us, we would become joy-filled worshipers, people for whom it is no chore to love one another. And all the rest of Romans 12 as we saw it there before because it is in view of the mercies of God in view of the mercies of God that we present our bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God that's true worship when we come to God in view of his mercy man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever let's pray Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.